So this morning we are we're looking at Acts chapter one, the first fourteen verses. Acts one, uh, one through fourteen. Uh, you can find the words beside me. Almost said behind me. Uh, beside me on the screen, and uh, you can follow along that way. Uh, but before we read, let's pray together. God, we're just grateful. Uh, Grateful that we can gather together in this way. Grateful that we can can do this all at the same time uh, and be present to you and be aware of your presence with us. As we open your word, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds. Do whatever it is you have to do in, in us to, to make us more like Jesus. Amen. So Acts 1, verses 1 through 14, hear these words. By the way, Acts is the second book in a two-book series. The first book is Luke, the Luke story about Jesus, and then he sort of follows it up with the book of Acts. What happens to the community that springs up uh, because of Jesus? So that's sort of what Acts is about loosely. So goes like this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these people and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly Two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. We will go that far. So... A few weeks ago, we looked at another story in the book of Acts. This one found in 
Acts chapter 2, the end of that chapter. And we entertained a very specific question. Uh, what makes the church the church? Like, what are the essential things? What are the marks of the church? And through that story, we uh, sort of identified several different things. We saw a community of people who were committed to their their own spiritual learning and to the spiritual learning of others. They sort of gathered in smaller groups together, maybe of 10 and 15, and they asked each other really tough questions. Questions like, how in the world are we going to become more like Jesus? How are we going to live into this new kind of life that he showed us how to live? And they, my guess is they got really specific about it. We saw a community of people that love to break bread together. They love to eat together. They love to experience the kind of community that sort of had grace enough to allow for differences, to allow for diversity. And we saw a community that was, that was marked by extreme generosity. Luke tells us that they gave to anyone as he had need. Not just the people in the club, but they gave to anyone who had need. They recognized that, that, that things like love and generosity and grace, those were the things, those were the, the very best things, maybe the only things that really helped to make the world the way the world ought to be, the way God wanted the world to be. Well, this morning, we're sort of going to take a, a step back and we're going to we're going to glimpse at the beginning of the beginning of what we now call the church. And we enter into this conversation that Jesus has with his early followers just before he ascends into heaven. It's, a, it's sort of a conversation that inspires these people to be, a, to be a people of purpose. It's a conversation in which Jesus gives them a picture, gives them, gives them a vision of what they're about to be caught up in. A vision of what life is about to be like for them. And this vision is, it's just huge. It's not a very long conversation. It's really short, but the vision he paints is just, it's just big. It's essentially what he's saying is, look, what I've been saying to you about the kingdom of God and, and, and what I'm saying to you right now, it's just big. It's extreme. In fact, it's so big that you can't possibly accomplish it all on your own. Guess what? This thing is too big for you. But don't worry about it because the Spirit's coming and you will receive power. So what is this picture? What is this vision that Jesus is sort of talking about? I got three words for you. Kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. If you look at the end of verse 3, it says this. Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days, 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. So Jesus died, he rose again, appeared to them, and then spent 40 days talking to them just about the kingdom of God. I think this is Luke's way of trying to sell more books. <laughs> Like, I think this is his way of trying to get us to go back to the first book that he wrote and read his story about Jesus again. Because the first book is entirely about the kingdom of God. The teaching of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, all of it was about this thing called the kingdom 
of God. So just for fun, I went back into the back of one of my Bibles. And in the back, you can find what's called the concordance. And there it shows you how many times a word shows up in different books of the Bible. Uh, So just for fun, I wanted to see how many times in Luke it talked about the kingdom of God. And in the back of one of my Bibles, it had 42 different times in the book of Luke, the kingdom of God was mentioned or referenced. And it's got to be a little bit more than that, maybe 50 to 60 times, because they never list every single time. And so that winds up being two times per chapter in the book of Luke that the kingdom of God is mentioned. The kingdom of God. It's the central theme to the teaching of Jesus. Like that's the thing, the kingdom of God. It's the very reality that governed his every move, everything he did. It's the very reality that gave him the courage and strength to head to Jerusalem and to face the cross, to give up his life. If we don't get this vision of the kingdom of God, if we're not talking about it like all the time, we're we're kind of missing a whole bunch. Like we're missing the thing, the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Thank you for asking. It's a great question. Problem is, I can't give you a straight definition of the kingdom of God. Can't do it. I can't do it because Jesus never gives us a straight definition of the kingdom of God. But you know what he did? He talked a whole bunch about the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You put it in the ground and it becomes the largest of garden plants. He said the kingdom of God is like yeast. You put it in a little batch of dough and it sort of gives it shape and form and it rises and it's beautiful. He said the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. It's like a merchant looking for fine pearls. It's like a net being being let down in the lake. And he said a whole bunch of other things about the kingdom of God, but no straight definition there, right? And the way he talks about the kingdom of God, he sort of invites us into the whole process of thinking and dreaming about the kingdom of God. He sort of invites us to give it a try, to come up with a definition of the kingdom of God. And so here's my meager shot at it. And I'm telling you right now, it's meager, it's little. But here I go. It's the reign of God. It's the rule of God. If we're talking about a kingdom, then we're then you got to have a king, right? And so God is the king. And what do kings do? Kings rule. So we're talking about the rule of the divine. And we're sort of invited to have a to have a kind of special awareness of God's action and presence. In the world, God is closer than we ever dreamed before. And we're invited to have this ability to to look for it, to see, to hear, to taste, to touch, and move alongside of what God is up to in the world. The kingdom of God reminds us that we're not alone, reminds us that we're never alone. It reminds us that we've always got help from the king because not a single one of us is beyond the scope of his rule. Not a single person on the planet is beyond the scope of God's saving power. Even the poor, maybe most especially the poor. If you read about 
the stories about Jesus in the Bible, and who he hung out with, who he called to be his followers, maybe the poor, maybe especially the poor, the, the people who are on the outside, the outcasts. He talks about the little children. He talks about the least of these, people who are marginalized. Even people like that have a, a special access to God's action and presence in the world. Okay, that's my shout at it. What are other people saying about this thing we call the, the kingdom of God? Here's Brian McLaren's shot at it. You can find this in a book called The Secret Message of Jesus, which, by the way, is an awesome book. In case you're wanting to hear that again, I'll repeat it. It's The Secret Message of Jesus. Fantastic book. Anyway, here's what he says. The kingdom of God is God's dream for the world. The kingdom of God is God's dream for the world. Not the kind of freaky dreams we have at night, but the kind of great dreams a mother has for her children. Oh, or a coach has for his players or a teacher has for her students. The kingdom of God is the way God wants the world to be anything else, anything less, he says, it's nothing more than a nightmare. I like that. The kingdom of God is God's dream for the world. What is God's dream for the world? So, given what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, I want to talk a little bit more about this vision that, that Jesus gives to his followers. The first thing is this. this, and it shouldn't surprise us at all. Like, we should all see this coming. This vision is profoundly others-oriented. It's profoundly others-oriented. Now, this is something that Jesus' first followers sort of struggled with. And it wasn't because they were dumb or stupid. No. They struggled with this because they're humans. And we human beings struggle with just being others oriented. So after Jesus tells them that the Spirit's coming, he's going to give them power to live into this dream that God has for the world, they ask him a very specific question. They say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they didn't understand. They didn't get what this was all about and what was about to happen. They still thought that the kingdom was about them. It was about Israel. They wanted Jesus to make Israel great again. They still wanted Jesus to kick out the Roman occupiers and make Israel the sort of only world superpower. And in a lot of ways, it makes sense that they would think like that. Of course, right? So Jesus gently reminds them that, that their one and only responsibility was to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, this thing has this natural, intrinsic, outward flow to it, right? In a sense, he's saying this isn't about you, you all. It's about the redemption of the world. That's a big deal. That's not a small dream. That's not a small vision. That's gigantic, right? And it's going to take bold, big, beautiful, self-giving, loving action in order to make it happen. 
And look, if they would have been like regular disciples of any old regular rabbi at the time, here's what they would have done after Jesus was gone. They would have just stayed in Jerusalem and they probably would have founded a school. And they would have studied his teachings. They would have studied his actions. They would have studied his life. And they would only have carefully admitted into this school the most promising students. Right? But Jesus said, no, don't do that. Don't just stay in Jerusalem. Don't just found a school. Scatter. Go bigger than that. Don't sit and just wait for a few interested people to sort of come and check you out and just go out in the streets, scatter, start actually living God's dream for the world. Start witnessing, start pointing out to people where God's dream is actually becoming a reality. Go, get out of here, scatter. Right? So this vision is profoundly others-oriented. It's got this outward flow that's just built into the system. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. This thing is world-encompassing. It's world-encompassing. That's huge. Jesus says his witnesses are intended to witness to the ends of the earth. It's world-encompassing. Now, we sort of get this. We sort of understand it. Historically speaking, the American church has been really good about sending money overseas right, to the ends of the earth. The American church historically has been really good at sending groups of people to be missionaries to the ends of the earth. Right? The problem is, I think in a lot of ways, we've sort of neglected our own backyard. I mean, the world in which we live around us all the time, we wouldn't say, yeah, this is definitely a, a Jesus culture. No, we wouldn't say that at all. We know and we see and we feel this sort of dissonance every day. It's, it's more likely now than ever that the ends of the earth, what we're used to thinking of way out there, people who need Jesus, mo most, most likely it's right in our own backyard. I mean, we've been living with the assumption for so long that the ends of the earth are out there, like in China or in Russia or in India, or in Africa, or in some other place. But the ends of the earth are, man, they're right around us. Did you know that the church in Australia, and China, and Africa are now sending missionaries to Europe and America because they see that, they see this place as their primary mission field? Oh my goodness. What are we doing? They're sending missionaries to us. Sometimes the ends of the earth aren't way out there. They're just right outside the door. It's world-encompassing. Here's the last thing I want to say. Well, no, two more things. This thing is explosive, right? And it's in its natural explosive growth, if we really lean into it. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So it starts small in Jerusalem. And then it expands naturally into Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Right? We're, what we're really being invited to participate in is, is the parable of the mustard seed. In Matthew's gospel, this is what Jesus says. He says the kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed. 
which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it becomes the largest of garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and perch in its branches. So the birds of the air can come and find grace, come and find shade, come and find some of the most essential things needed to live a flourishing life. But before any of that was going to take place, I find this interesting. Before any of that was going to happen, they're told to wait. Just wait. Wait in Jerusalem. They're told to wait. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at waiting. Like, it takes patience. I don't like patience. I hate patience. I don't like waiting. If there's something that needs to be done, let's go. Let's get it done. Let's make it happen. And we've all sort of been thrown into this season of waiting. Right? We're all waiting for this dumb pandemic to just get over with already. Just run its course so we can get back to normal. So we're sort of in this waiting period. But we're not all simply at home, sitting on our hands, just doing nothing to wait things out. We're involved in an active kind of waiting, if you think about it. In the meantime, we're doing everything we can. We're, we're starting to make plans for what it's going to look like when we can gather together safely. We're all washing our hands way more than we've ever washed our hands before. We're using hand sanitizer way more than we ever have. We're wearing masks when we're out in public to protect others for love of the other. We're, we're practicing social distancing. We're enduring our 2,000th Zoom call. We're done with that already, aren't we? It's an active sort of waiting, though. We're not doing nothing. We're doing everything we can. The disciples were actively waiting, too. In verse 14, it says, They all joined together constantly in what? In prayer. Constantly connecting with the divine. It's an active sort of waiting. Waiting and praying. Waiting and and praying. And you know what this reminds us of? It reminds us that what we're called to is, is much more than just busyness and human effort. It reminds us that what we're called to, what we're sort of caught up in here, is much bigger than we can just sort of handle all on our own. Look, Jesus didn't choose these people because they were like super spiritual heroes. He didn't choose these people because they were the most capable, because they were the brightest and the smartest. No, he chose them because God's power could be revealed in them and through them. I mean, they had no real power on their own. Just the, just the power that God would give to them. And that power was about to come. Jesus said the Spirit's coming. The Spirit is on the way. So maybe, maybe for us, that's kind of what this season is about. Waiting and praying. Waiting. Sometimes it's good to wait. 
waiting and connecting with the divine. And I know that this season has been that for a lot of you. I know because you've told me. We've had conversations about it, and I love it. And it's been really good for you because we've had to drop so much stuff. We've been able to wait, and we've been able to to connect with the divine in ways that we haven't been able to connect with God for a while. And it's been really good. And so maybe that's what this season is about for all of us, together, collectively as a whole. A time for us to, to wait, to connect with the divine, allow the power of God, allow the, the voice of God, the promptings of God to listen to God, letting us know what's truly essential for us as a church, for us as renewed community. So that when we do gather back together again, when it's safe and good and smart and we can all be healthy, so that when we do gather together, we can really get into the flow of what God is up to in the world and really, really start making God's dream for the world become a reality. So wait. Be okay with waiting. But make it an active kind of awaiting. Connect with the divine. Often. Listen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for this book. Thank you for all the ways that you speak to us in it and through us. And God, we ask that as we continue to wait, that, that we would listen and that you would speak and that we would be able to connect with you in, in ways that we haven't been able to in a really long time so that our relationship with you can, can deepen and grow so that when we do get back together again, we can enter into this flow of what you're up to in the world. Reveal things to us, oh God. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus.